Hello, and welcome to GovConnect, where we sit down with local government innovation experts to bring you insightful stories and advice on technology, best practices, and the latest trends. And here's our host, Andrew Kirk. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of GovConnect. I'm honored and really excited to have Nick Bowden here. Most of you probably know him from his days as a CEO and founder of MindMixer and later My Sidewalk. And um, it's hard to believe Nick and I go back actually about five years. We were together in Palm Springs in the desert at an Esri Partner Conference and had our first really great in-depth conversation. We we're talking about everything from monthly active users to the procurement process in government. So he's seen a lot of sides. I think he brings a really interesting perspective to the innovation side. First of all, Nick, thanks for being here. Why don't you kick off and tell us a little bit about you and your background. Thanks for having me, Andrew. I'm excited to, uh, to continue the conversation. By way of background, I have an urban planning background. So I started my career at the city of Phoenix, which a lot of people don't know on the municipal or the public sector side. Spent some time at a big um, urban planning engineering consulting firm uh, and then started uh, my own consulting firm and then Mind Mixer and then my sidewalk. Um, I'm at Sidewalk Labs, which is a uh, subsidiary of Alphabet or a sibling to Google. Um, so I've spent, it's been actually 12 or 13 years, kind of my whole career in the, the government and then the government tech space. That's a pretty interesting transition where you go from consultant to gov technology CEO. I think at the time you raised $23 million. So you had a, a, a pretty amazing jump as far as your career path there and a lot of success. So take us through that transition and how you kind of saw that opportunity. So this, you know, government is largely relied on services, right? Consultants for the better part of at least the last two decades when it comes to a lot of what they do. I think as a consultant, you get a lot of insight into like, how does the work get done? In part because you're doing some of the work, uh, but you're also, you have a, a longer kind of drawn out process. And so there's more time to like think about this is how this process works through. And Mind Mixer was really a productization of the, the civic engagement process, right? So if I hadn't done that human process as a consultant, like facilitating town halls, organizing town halls, trying to get people to show up to town halls, I'm not sure I would even have the insight to start my mixer in the first place. And so it was a, it was a pretty natural transition. I mean, the, the company and how you work is very different. But right? as a consultant, you're time is money. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's actually part of the reason I didn't like it is because you have a disincentive to be efficient in some regards um, because you're billing your time. Whereas a product, you have total incentive to be totally efficient and try to scale it across. And then the other notable part of that transition is just when in the consulting world, you can only really do a small number of, of customers or, or places or cities at one time. And so it's not very scalable mm -hmm. um, and the scalable in the sense of impact, right? I think one of the things that I know you guys have done and we try to do at MindMixer is how do we actually pass knowledge across you know, relatively disparate cities, but actually have a lot of the same problems. So I, I think now I would never go back. It'd be hard for me to go back to, to consulting mm -hmm. um, kind of full-time and not thinking about building products, but I think the transition is actually really helpful. I think that's interesting. At City Sourced, we were so head down into, at the beginning, we're a product company. This is our DNA. This is who we are. And we still are. We, we, we partner on the services side, but it's somewhat the fabric of government today that that services component is just always, it's almost the, the, the comfort level of having that expert there locally helping someone think through their own business processes, their own ways of of doing business. Give us the 
the elevator pitch for what Mind Mixer was, and then you had a transition into my sidewalk. How did you think through it was the right move to make yeah. one? I think a lot of people on the outside saw it as a pretty significant change. Good question. The short version is my mixer was an online town hall. So we want to take this process that was uh, 12 months that required a bunch of meetings and people to show up physically to those meetings and put it online, not like in a live streaming way, but in a, a forum-esque way. So if you're familiar with you know Reddit, it's a decent example of something like this in the consumer world. And we ended up working with actually close to 2,000 cities across the world to provide the service, which was, which is cool. I mean, it was mm-hmm. fun. I think well beyond what Nathan and I imagined when we started it, of course. Part of the transition was, I think the transition was twofold. One, I think like a lot of products in this space, um, especially as venture capital has flowed in this space, a lot of products have gotten commoditized and the price point drops significantly, which I think is an overall good thing for government because you can get more for your dollar. The problem when that happens is that differentiating between good products and not so good products becomes a lot more difficult because on the surface, community engagement in particular, everybody does community engagement, quote unquote. Whether or not they do community engagement and whether or not it's the kind of community engagement that you want, I think is is just harder to distinguish. And you're buying off of a short demo, You may or may not have a lot of familiarity. And so you may not see like the inner workings of a product. And I think what we saw as a macro trend was the peer and community engagement space um, was slowly getting commoditized. The price point was coming down to a point where like our own business unit economics like started to not make as much sense anymore. And so we didn't abandon it. We just said, if this were to evolve, what would be the next step? And I think the natural next step is we want to know more about who's engaging because it's one thing to know the example I always use is like 500 people want new bike lanes, right? And this is a common thing in cities, but if cities don't know who those people are, like where do they live? Roughly speaking, who are they? Are they young people? Are they old people? Then designing and implementing services becomes a kind of a shot in the dark. And so the transition from my mixer, my sidewalk was really, Let's maintain this notion of engagement, but let's actually have a backbone of it that is that's more empirical, that's that's measurable. And so, my sidewalk then um, still had the engagement part, but then the the back end of my sidewalk is really really deep into demographic and socioeconomics that both could be integrated into the engagement efforts, but also be kind of a call it GIS light as a standalone. And so that was kind of the two parts. I. You know, it's funny, you know this from City Sourced. I think when changes happen from the outside, you don't see that, you know, they've been in effect for 12 months or 18 months or been thought about. And as a founder, you think about this stuff all of the time. And so it was not nearly as sudden, I think, to us, of course, and even to our customers, maybe as it was to the market as a whole. But I'd still do it again 100 times out of 100. You guys were probably some of the most successful when it comes to traditional venture capital, which is what people think of as like the typical capital source for quick, fast, young businesses. It's not, it doesn't seem to be quite as prevalent in the gov tech space. You see, especially as companies grow, mature, you see a lot more growth equity and private equity type of funding. But you guys kind of bucked that trend and really did the VC model. Um, as much as you're kind of comfortable, talk about what that's like and how you think that um, continues to play out for GovTech businesses moving forward? So I, I think VC 
regardless of industry, I think VC, when you raise venture capital money, it just puts a different kind of pressure on the business. That's not a, that's not a good or a bad pressure. It's just a different kind of pressure. I mean, you're, you're very explicitly saying we want to grow as fast as we can. We think we have a scalable product and we think we have a scalable set of people in the company to take that product to a bigger market. And so um, you condense a lot of your growth and it becomes intentionally inorganic. And when your growth becomes inorganic, that means you have a new kind of pressure, right? You have to service more customers than you probably were servicing or, or accustomed to servicing before. You have to sell more. And I think the trap there, if you're not careful, is that you get out in front of your skis mm-hmm. and all of a sudden you're, you're just, you're bigger than you can manage. I think the lesson learned for me there is that the, we say the internal mass grows faster than the external surface. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is you have to hire more people faster. And as a company gets bigger, it just gets more complex and more complicated. And there's more relationships to manage. Mm-hmm. And this is not unique to GovTech. This is just venture capital in general. And so you're kind of in this as a, as a founder, as a leader of a company, you get in the space of like, how do I continue to maintain a culture and a value set and, and a direction and a vision that's clear while still growing really fast? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's, it's not right for every business and it's also not right for every founder. I think the key part of that is like, is that what you want for your company? And are you willing to play within those expectations? I think a lot of people, I'm not sure why, get, end up getting surprised by like, they have to grow fast when they raise venture capital. And that's kind of the, that's kind of the point, right? And I think we knew going into it what we were getting into. And I think it, it by and large helped us grow fast. Now, specifically to this space, this space is really hard for venture capital, in my opinion. And that's, this is not a popular take for a lot of people. But I think the reason it's hard is because there's, an in, there's a finite number of customers. So if you're in like the small, medium-sized business, right, and you're building a product for SMBs, there's 415,000 new businesses every year in the U.S., right? So there's this natural kind of churn of businesses that are, are new customers for a product. In the government space, there are basically the same number of government agencies today that there were 40 years ago. And not only is the number the same, the agencies are the exact same. And in a lot of those agencies, the same people work there that worked there 30 or 40 years ago. And so you just don't have a churn out of customers. And a lot of product companies need a little bit of churn out because you need new customers to acquire. And government just doesn't have that unless you go international. And there's a whole sort of other challenges. And so I think what that boils down to, and again, this is seven years, eight years of thinking about this and going through it, is in order to support VC in this space, I think your price point on your product just has to be a lot higher Hmm. and your lifetime value, right? Which means that customers have to stay with you just has to be really long. Um, And if you do that, then a slower sales cycle and a finite number of customers and a slower adoption cycle don't play as much of a factor into the growth of the business. But if you're at a $5,000, $10,000, $20,000 a year product, it's just really, really hard to sustain the kind of growth rate that you need in venture capital. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting. And I've had this conversation with a lot of tech founders that it's very different than the private sector because, as you said, the price point increases. You see a lot more procurement hurdles mm-hmm. than you do in the private sector, but the model flips because you can usually have a lot lower churn. So that lifetime value can still be a great business opportunity, but you just don't see the growth multiples quarter over quarter, even month over month that typical venture capital likes to see. And that's why I think you see a lot of the 
private equity sees it more as a safe cash bet. And that's why you see a lot of play on that model. So now kind of taking us recently, you know, tell you went from one sidewalk to the next sidewalk. So tell us about uh, sidewalk labs and specifically replica doing some really amazing stuff. I know there's a lot of location and you're another data play. So tell us about what you're up to now. Yeah. So I, I left, um, my sidewalk it's been a year and a half or so so november of 2016 um i'd probably put a decade of 80 hour and 90 hour work weeks in uh, at the time I had a year and a half year old son who's now close to three um, my sidewalk is still operating and and doing well and so i think it's actually turned out well for both sides um, i took some time off which i hadn't done in a long time um, and then sidewalk labs for people that aren't familiar um, I mentioned it's a um, it's an alphabet company, but the the whole of the company it's based out of New York. It's about 100 people, a little bit less than 100 people at this point. Um, is focused on building cities from the internet up. I think is what we'd say. So think about a future city um, that takes all of this um, this smart kind of internet of things, smart development, um, innovative things around infrastructure, and tries to put them in one place. We're working in Toronto um, to try to do that. Um, the other part, or the part that I kind of sit in, so to speak, in Sidewalk Labs, um, there's some independent product groups um, that are working on products that are both applicable to the Toronto project, but also maybe applicable to a wider market. Um, and so when I came on a little over a year ago or so, I'd spent some time kind of in the data as a service side uh, of GovTech. Um, Nick Chim uh, and Alexi Posnikoff were both kind of starting to think about how to do this in the transportation space and spent some time. And so the melding of our interest and expertise and backgrounds has now resulted in replica. I think the easiest way to understand it is just how do people move in a city? How do you better understand how people move in a city? And so not fundamentally different at its core than say my sidewalk was, which is how do you use data to support better decision-making? The difference of course is replica's focus kind of specifically on the movement of people. Simply put um, is we take mobile location data. It's, privacy protected and anonymized before we get it um, and we build a synthetic version of a region's population so it's statistically equivalent uh, but not identifiable so you can't go identify yourself in it that's made up part of household characteristics so things that you'd, you'd see in the census and part on people how people move um, and then we model that to create an entire representation of your city or your region's movement. So where do people go? When do they go there? How do they get there? So they go by bus, they go by car, and for what purpose? Uh, and then along a bunch of different variables. In Replica, what a city can do is say, we want to understand how many people are biking to work from neighborhood A uh, to downtown between 8 and 8.30 a.m. And you can actually get that um, answer and you can get you know what network links they're using so what roads they they go to get there and so if you're thinking about planning decisions and policy sensitivity um, replica is a tool that you can do a lot of that in and then we update it every single quarter and so you get a new um, snapshot of your city or region's movement every three months and the kind of the state of art right now or previously in transportation modeling is you use a, a how what's called a household survey Mm -hmm. uh, or a travel diary um, that that a family that's randomly selected, you know, literally writes where they go and when they go there on a, on a piece of paper. Now they have mobile apps that do some of this. Mm -hmm. um, a region does that if they're really lucky every five years, more likely closer to every 10 years. 
Um, and then all of a region's major transportation policy and infrastructure decisions are based on that model that may be using data that's 10 or 12 years old. There, there are ways to do this now that um, you can maintain and improve accuracy and fidelity, but use new methods to get there. And so Replica is a shot at this. And we've been really, really fortunate that there's a, there's a ton of interest in it. So we're actually basically booked out until 2020. Um, building replicas for regions across the U.S. It's a really interesting way of using data. And what I find most fascinating is that uh, I think people could look at you and say, oh, he was an urban planner and then left and went and did government technology. But a lot of the stuff you've done is really uh, a planner needs information to make decisions. And you've just found new and maybe better ways. So whether it's asking someone to come to a Reddit-style forum and trying to push them to give you information and now kind of just pulling that data in through these mobile devices and increasingly more ways that citizens are connected. You're just doing this with more and more data and providing more information. So hopefully cities can do more innovative things, but also just think about their planning and moving people in the day-to-day stuff that that's kind of the core of what a city offers. I think um, a huge thing in the news right now, as far as mobility and moving is the dockless scooters and whether five years ago it was Uber, which is the new innovation. And it's like, you know, kind of sidestepping government entirely and trying to think about moving people. I guess, how do you think about it? But how do you think also like innovation officers within these um, government organizations can continue to provide services in a smart way to citizens and continue to encourage entrepreneurs and innovators to bring those ideas and bring them to life and find solutions and kind of coexist nicely together in that world. So I think one of the challenges, it's a broad challenge for any kind of innovation in government, is that government, um, I think, has two primary elements to it. So one is it's risk averse, and you actually want governments to be risk averse in many ways. Now, the trade-off, though, is that risk aversity brings a more top-down kind of approach to the world. And so government's urban planning in particular have this kind of view that you can you can actually plan out right 10 or 20 or 30 god forbid you can plan out a year but we think we can plan out like 30 years <laughs> and in reality the world actually works a lot different which is more bottom up and so cities are the most beautiful cities that you want to go to and visit in the, in the most distinctive neighborhoods are not because someone sat behind a desk and said, wow, you know, 20 years from now, this is what I want. They're largely organic. They're largely bottom up and they're mostly emergent. Right. And I think, um, technology and product companies work that way, right. In a very emergent way. And I think Uber is an example of this kind of like emergent technology that says, wait a second, there's people needing, there's a marketplace here. Let's do this. Uh, these new dockless scooters or dockless bikes are an example of this. Right. And so these are emergent demands of your citizens. Mm-hmm. They want to move in different ways. Companies and entrepreneurs take that kind of um, latent demand of consumers and build products to support it. And then they come to a place like a city um, to actually operate. And these two things like collide, right? So this bottom-up emergent behavior collides with kind of this top-down risk-averse um, hierarchical nature of governments. And this is where all this conflict and tension comes from. And so what governments do as a little bit of a knee-jerk to that is they, they regulate. So they stop things and then they say like, wait a second, we got to get this under control. The the hard part about that is you just don't really have enough data because it's new and it's emergent to really regulate it effectively. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not an advocate for like this 
everything goes, right? And like, it'll just sort itself out. But in some respects, it kind of will, right? Because consumers will sort themselves out. So I think if you're in a chief innovation position, part of the challenge is how do we actually not cut things off at the legs that might be great for our cities before they even get started? Mm -hmm. And I think this is why you've seen this kind of adversarial relationship between governments and particularly mobility, because it, it gets into the public space. It's using... Uh, public infrastructure, there's safety elements to it. By and large, I think a lot of it is government has overreacted in some respects because consumers are going to kind of sort it out for you, right? There's only so much demand for scooters and only so much demand for Uber. And I think now we come to light some congestion problems that are created by some of these things. But like <laughs> by and large, they're also creating new forms of mobility that people clearly value uh, and find value in. And so one interesting thing that I think I don't think a government's tried it yet, but there's this notion of like, can you create like almost regulation free or innovation zones, like geographic areas that companies like this could actually test in, in exchange for sharing data. We'll go in here, we'll test it. People that live there, right, or choose to go there know that it's this kind of zone that new stuff is, is happening, right? And you live with some of the chaos of that. And I think cities could probably actually get companies that would be willing to share some of that. But when it becomes adversarial, then it's hard, right? You mm. see this play out with Uber in particular, where like Uber doesn't want to share data for competitive reasons. So then cities regulate more or they try to subpoena some of this data. And it just, you get into this kind of weird dichotomy of like innovation versus government. Mobility is probably moving people around is probably one of the foremost functions of government is how do we efficiently move people from A to B and how do we do it in a cost-effective way? How do we do it in a way that isn't damaging the environment? How do we do it in a way that um, doesn't create more problems, right? Than it solves. And this regulatory regulate first mm -hmm. and then try to allow innovators to follow or subsequently kind of like still provide a service, I think is a really hard tension. I don't know how it gets solved unless you get a company in a city that are truly cooperating in a way that uh, allows both to kind of uh, meet their needs. I think there might be a business model in there for a future GovTech entrepreneur, which would be a chaos as a service. Can you yeah. find a, a local <laughs> government and create a zone and you'll just create the chaos or innovation zone? Think about from your perspective, right? I mean, I think one of the, one of the hard challenges to starting a company in this space is that you're like, you're battling all this stuff. So you're battling like in a regulatory environment, you're battling procurement, you're battling a long history of doing things a certain way and you're battling like a organizational structure and government that is not really designed to be cross-functional. It's designed to be very vertically oriented. What do you think working with different governments as a consultant, different products, and really looking at the chief information officer, what do you think is the biggest challenge or opportunity? Privacy and security. Governments in general deal with it, which is like you're storing a ton of information. You have an increasing number of sensors, and that's not going to stop. A lot of people don't realize, I mean, traffic sensors have been around for a long time, right? Traffic cameras have been around for a long time, but now you have smart sensors, right? Kiosk, you've got public provided Wi-Fi that's collecting data. You have um, digital services, so digital identification services. You've got registration. I mean, there's just a lot. Government holds a lot of data, and that's increasing. There's a lot of private companies that are trying to get into this space, and I don't think people are quite prepared for like what that entails from a privacy standpoint. But the thing is, is they, they can provide value if they're used in appropriate ways. And so specifically, decentralized identity and identity management 
I think is a really, really interesting thing that chief information officers can be thinking about, which is how do we provide a single digital identity that isn't centralized, that can be used for things like driver's license to payment in a store, and how does government get a part of that? Because it's happening, it's happening, and I'm not sure that governments are part of that. That to me is like one of the most interesting problems that I think we're embarking on. Something you hit on a little bit about, could you as a citizen, basically potentially blockchain technology, could you basically opt into services? And then as soon as you're done using that service, remove your personal information so that the end service provider would actually really never tap directly into that. I wanna jump into our rapid fire where we're gonna ask you a couple of questions and then just, hit it back with us. So the first one, you know, because City Source is really into mobile city hall. We believe in this model of delivering more and better services through a single mobile application. What type of smartphone do you use and what is your favorite app? Oh man. Um I'm an Apple. I'm an iOS guy. Um favorite app actually because I have a, a relatively newborn it's called Wonder Weeks. It's <laughs> like a, a psychological uh, shows you how how babies uh, advanced psychologically. It's, it's pretty cool as a parent. I don't know if that's the answer you're expecting, but that's no, what that, we want to know you. So that's great. <laughs> you're really into the, everything. Talk about innovation and rapid development. You have a newborn. Every week is different. All right. Next one. What's one book that you most recommend or give away to others? Rational Optimist by Matt Ridley. It's kind of a history of trade and that, and it's a history of just like the world. It's, there's never been a better time to be alive empirically. Uh, and so I think go to Twitter for a second, right? And be drowned out in pessimism and, uh, and how everything's terrible and we're about to cross another line and we're never going to come back and da 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 da. And I think there's some of those things may be true, but by and large, pessimists have come, they're pretty cheap and they're, they're around all the time. They've been around for all of history and they're usually wrong. Uh, and optimists have, have largely, although in their moment, um, take a lot of heat, have largely proven to be right. So I think that book, it's 10 years, 10 or 12 years old, but I've read it a couple of times and I'll read it again. I love the idea of very simply as an individual, as trying to eliminate as many negative voices in your life. Obviously, you're not going to get rid of uh, everyone, but if you have people in your circle, those tend to be the voices you hear the most. And as much as you can build positivity around you, it tends to reverberate and really bring back good things back to yourself. Last one. What's one tool, software, or even just a hack that you're using right now that makes your life better? I read a lot, but I read, I never could figure out like, how do I consume articles effectively, right? And I don't really want to like sift through Twitter timelines and Facebook feeds. So I use Nuzzle. Mm -hmm. Nuzzle brings like links and popular articles, but I don't like reading in Nuzzle because I can't highlight things and I like to highlight things. Mm -hmm. um, and so I push nuzzle um things from nuzzle into pocket which is an app which allows me to read offline because i travel but i also can't highlight in pocket so i had to find a hack to push into my kindle and so it happens to be that a developer somewhere and thank him or her for doing this um, has automated that so i can push all of my pocket articles into my kindle and then in kindle i can highlight and then I can export my notes out of Kindle. A true geek in action. You got your, <laughs> your Russian dolls of digital reading service. I love that. Cool. Well, Nick, listen, I just want to thank you so much for giving us your time, sharing a lot of knowledge. You've obviously done an amazing amount of work from the consulting side all the way now to really, really, I think, on the cutting edge of data and really helping cities make um, better decisions through using data and hitting one of those biggest challenges in terms of mobility. Tell the, the listeners and the readers, I know you're big on Medium, you contribute a lot of stuff. Where 
can they read more about you and connect with you online? Email is probably the best, honestly. Uh, it's just Nick at betterplanning.co or um, I don't tweet a ton, but I, I follow Twitter. I, I try to be meaningful in some of the tweets, but Twitter is a good example. It's at NJ Bowden or I do, um, I, I blog a lot less now with a newborn than I did before. Mm-hmm. Um, but on Medium, yeah, my, uh, my better planning blog, I try to write about this stuff and have written a decent amount of stuff. I don't know if any of it's good, but uh, it could be helpful. Well, I've read it as well. I can attest to it. And we'll throw a a link to all of those up in the show notes so people can go and learn more. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Andrew. I appreciate it. It It's good. It was fun. Thanks for listening to GovConnect. Please make sure you subscribe. And don't forget, we need you to rate and review so that we can continue to bring you the best in local government innovation.